The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those of you who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where you shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is a very respected researcher and author, Nick Redfern. We'll discuss his latest publication, Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. Nick will be with us shortly. And next week, we have two guests I've been wanting to invite on the show for some time, Drs. J.J. and Desiree Hurtak, Questions of Life and the Keys of Enoch for 2010 and beyond. The Keys of Enoch is actually one of my favorite books. Last week's program with Dr. David Jacobs was very controversial. According to the number of email I'm receiving, instead of discussing each email one by one, I suggest you turn to the Manticore forum and submit your input there. The topic is being heavily discussed. That said, I never thought I would say this. I always make it a point, a priority, to read and answer every email. However, and this is a compliment actually, I'm receiving more email than I can handle to respond. 
So rest assured, I will always read your email, but although I do my best to respond, it's becoming more and more difficult to answer every one of them. I thank you for understanding and for being patient. A quick clarification about our different subscription types. Some people have asked why there is a difference between our automatically renewing subscription and the non-renewing one. One is $15.95 and the other one is $21. The reason why the self-renewing has a lower rate is because the system is automated. You subscribe, the system sends your login information immediately and it renews automatically. However, the other option is manual. I have to involve my programming staff in order to set it up and also because you are not automatically renewing it, it carries a premium. Some people have subscribed to the $15.95 version of the subscription to cancel the next day to find out they are blocked. Yes, you are blocked because that is what the offer is. Although you can cancel at any time, the system will block you. If you want to be in control, then the $21 alternative is the way to go. Although this is stipulated on the website, I wanted to clarify it to avoid further confusion. Have you ever heard of MMS? The Miracle Mineral Solution. I usually do not endorse any product unless I test them. And this is one of them. Take a look at what this product can do for your health and how affordable it is. Go to our website, VeritasShow.com and scroll down. Take a moment to read it and you'll see why I think this would be so helpful to you and everyone you know. And to those who are buying Veritas products, t-shirts, mugs, caps, and more, thank you for the feedback. I'm glad you're all enjoying them. To buy, just go to the Veritas store and choose from all the products available. I'm sure people will start asking you what Veritas is all about. So you want a free Veritas subscription? Well, we need transcriptions. You can get a free Veritas subscription if you are 100% capable of transcribing a show. Go to our free subscription link and find out what the next available show there is to transcribe. Then, send an email with your qualifications to transcribe at veritasshow.com. Once you have fully transcribed the show, we will send you a three-month subscription with access to all our past shows. If you need to get in touch with me, simply send me an email to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. For news and discussions on our shows, visit our blog and the Manticore Forum, where you can interact with so many people from around the world and deprogram yourself from the mainstream media. And now, get ready. We are not alone. And Nate Redfern can prove it. We will spend a night discussing the fascinating stories of the select group of people chosen by visitors to Earth to spread their message. Are aliens really among us? More than a half a century later, the contactees are still among us, still telling their tales of personal alien encounters, and still maintaining their cult-like status in the world of ufology. A three-hour special edition with Nate Redfern, coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. you hear right here on The Veritest Show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, 
look up the song and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. Dr. J.J. Hurtak. And this is Dr. Desiree Hurtak. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the, the Veritash Show. Show. And originally from England, Nick Redfern lives in Arlington, Texas. He is a full-time author and journalist specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including UFOs, alien contact, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, government conspiracies, and paranormal phenomena. He writes regularly for UFO Magazine, 14 Times, Paranormal Magazine, and Fate. His previous book includes Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, Strange Secrets, A Covert Agenda, There's Something in the Woods, and his latest one, which we'll be discussing tonight, Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. Nick also lectures on the UFO subject both in the UK and abroad. Among his many exploits, Redfern has investigated reports of aliens in Mexico, lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico, werewolves in England, and crashes and crash UFOs in the United States. And directly from Texas, author, journalist, ufologist, and cryptozoologist, Nick Redfern. Hello, Nick, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Hey, Mel. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing good. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Nick, you have covered so many topics, but first, for those who may not be familiar with you, why don't you give us some background of yourself and, and what brought you to, the, to investigate all these interesting topics? That's a good question. <laughs> um, actually, as you mentioned, originally from England, uh, live now in Arlington. My wife's originally from Texas. She grew up in the Cayman Islands, so we have sort of like a really <laughs> sort of mixed background. Um, but what happened was that when I was about five or six, my family took me to Scotland for a week's holiday and while we were there we spent a day at Loch Ness and although it was you know a few years ago now I still have a few fragmentary memories of my dad telling me this story about the Loch Ness monster and kind of standing on the shore and thinking wow you know there could really be like a real surviving colony of dinosaurs deep in Loch Ness and I suppose from that moment onwards it really kind of even as you know as a small child exposed me to this I guess the fascinating world that perhaps things aren't quite as clear-cut as we imagine them to be and that you know there really are strange things out there to be found and as time developed you know I would read magazines and books on weird phenomena the paranormal etc and then after I finished my education um, I began working on a music magazine in England and did that for a couple of years and then thought well why don't I try and combine the interest and the career in writing with the interest in paranormal and unsolved mysteries so basically that's that's what I did and and developed it from there so I suppose really it's uh, it's all my dad's fault uh, got me into the mess I'm in now <laughs> And Nick, before we start discussing your latest work, and one of my favorite topics, human-alien interactions, since you spent time researching the UFO topic in England, I want to get your reaction to the closure of the British Ministry of Defense UFO desk, which has taken many of the U.S. In the, the, uh, of us in the field by surprise. The entire research project has been terminated, and that is what the British MOD said, quote, the MOD has no opinion on the existence of otherwise of extraterrestrial life. However, in over 50 years, 
No UFO report has revealed any evidence of a potential threat to the United Kingdom. BMOD has no specific capability for identifying the nature of such sightings. There is no defense benefit in such investigation, and it would be an inappropriate use of defense resources. Accordingly, and in order to make the best use of defense resources, we have decided that from the 1st of December 2009, the MOD will no longer respond to reported UFO sightings or investigate them, unquote. Nick, the MOD will be saving about 44,000 pounds or $73,000, which is nothing when you look at the government spending. With all the talk for, from some people, and I won't name any names, talking about imminent disclosure, what did this do to the disclosure movement? And what do you think was the real reason for the closure? Well, you know, I think you're quite right, Mel, that this whole press release and statement brings up a number of interesting factors. Um, I don't doubt, for example, that, you know, the, the specific branch of the Ministry of Defence is being honest in saying that, yes, we're no, gonna, no longer going to take reports and examine reports of strange phenomena in the sky. Now, in saying that, of course, if, say, for example, hypothetically, as does happen, a particular radar base on the east coast of England tracks an unknown target approaching the British Isles, which is by definition unidentified, of course, they're going to have to investigate it, if only to rule out terrorists, you know, or a sneak attack by a foreign nation. Now, if they're not able to resolve those cases, then by definition, that object or craft, whatever it was, would remain a UFO and they would have investigated it. You know, it's absurd to think that if unknown objects are tracked on British military radar scopes, they're just going to say, oh, we don't investigate UFO reports anymore. So whatever that thing is approaching the British Isles, we'll just let it continue approaching. You know, that, that's, that's absurd. There's no way that would be allowed to happen. So I suspect what they're actually saying or trying to say is that they don't want members of the public bombarding them with reports of lights in the sky, etc. But obviously, there's no way they would turn a blind eye to, you know, things that their own military radar people and pilots were reporting. So I think, you know, it's, it's kind of not as clear-cut as they would suggest. Now, of course, one of the other theories that's been expanded upon is the idea that um, in the same way in the United States, there was Project Blue Book, which looked into the UFO mystery for many years um, on behalf of the Air Force, at the same time, Blue Book was seen as being, quote, the official UFO study. The CIA, National Security Agency, Defense Intelligence Agency, and FBI, and all the other alphabet agencies in the government were all looking secret at the UFO subject as well. So just because one branch of the MOD is closing down its UFO office doesn't mean that there aren't other intelligence departments that may sporadically take an interest. Now, when it comes to the disclosure aspect of your question. Um, to be honest, I've never really been a big fan of the whole disclosure movement, I have to say, and that's, that's not, not from the perspective of feeling that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, I don't believe that, I, and I think the people in the, in the movement are you know, genuine, enthusiastic people who earnestly feel that following this approach will get the answers. But my own view, and some people might say it's a bit cynical, but my own view is that you know, lobbying the government and saying, please tell us the truth. The idea that they're just going to open the doors because we asked them to, to me, sounds a bit naive. I don't think political lobbying and, you know, asking for disclosure is going to 
prompt those who are sitting on the secret to disclose anything until they're ready to. You know, it doesn't matter how many people wave banners outside the White House. I don't believe it'll happen until the decision's made on the inside, not by us, unfortunately. It sounds ironic, but I, I concur with you. As long as that those people who are in control and keep the secrets have something to gain, yes. there's no way I can see them releasing those secrets. No, and I think, you know, the, the first thing, of course, that any disclosure by default will prove is that government agencies have lied for X number of years. I'm quite sure no president, prime minister, queen, king, or whoever wants to say, hey, here's the truth. Oh, and by the way, we've lied to you through our teeth for the last 60 years. Exactly. You know, in, that's, hopefully all of them want that to come in the next person's administration. Um, so I think that's an important thing. And also, you know, there's a little phrase in England, I'm not sure if it's used over here or not, the idea that you can't be a little bit pregnant. And um, what I mean by that is that you cannot have a little bit of disclosure. If you say that aliens are amongst us, then there's going to be this huge push for, well, what about abductions? What about cattle mutilations? Why are being people apparently being kidnapped against their will and DNA extracted, etc. if abductions are real. It opens up a real can of worms that goes far beyond the government just admitting that, yes, UFOs are here and we've hidden the facts. I think a lot of thought needs to go into the issue of what literal disclosure could mean. And it, at some of it may not be good news. It could be quite disturbing news. And, you know, it's whether or not we're ready for it and whether or not the relevant people who are hiding the information realize we're ready for it or not. And I like that metaphor of uh, being <laughs> half pregnant. You have yeah. to go all the way. And I always say that in order for that to be accomplished, immunity or amnesty has to be given to those who have been involved in the secret for 60 years. Mm. And in, 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 some people criticize me for me saying this, but the fact that some of these people may have free energy or, or technology that may take this uh, civilization from type zero, zero to type one. That's a crime against humanity, Nick. Oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, we only have to look at the unstable, volatile state of the world today, particularly in the Middle East. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's a very good argument for saying if free energy is available, then we all should have it. And to not have it is a crime if somebody is sitting on this secret. Um, and I think if they are, They should be ashamed of themselves and they should release it to everybody. But on the other hand, you know, then the knock-on effect is, well, if this bankrupts the Middle East overnight, which it could quite literally do, what will those countries or what will the response be of those nations? Will the entire Middle East collapse amid, you know, escalating atomic warfare as they all start to take each other out and get desperate and panicky? And where will it end? You know, I think... It is these sort of things that a lot of people don't necessarily think of. They just think of the black and white angles. And unfortunately, it's sometimes, you know, a, a shade of gray, if you like. There are, there are repercussions. I was speaking with uh, Dr. Brian O'Leary a couple of weeks ago in Ecuador. And Ecuador has turned to be a very open-minded country, very progressive. They're trying to, to save the rainforest, etc. However, 85% of the revenues of that country has to deal with uh, oil. Mm -hmm. So if you were to come out with something of free energy, what will, we have to also analyze the possibilities and the repercussions that these countries may have when they, they're, they're, the source to, to support their people mm -hmm. may be a thing of the past. Yeah, and the worst 
scenario, of course, is the fact that many of these countries, they really don't have another viable large source of income. It's, it, for a lot of them, it's basically all or nothing. And, exactly. you know, for a lot of countries, whether it's Britain, America, which are kind of similar nations, you know, there's a lot of industry and, and different forms of employment. When you have a nation where a substantial amount of the, the working population is employed in one or maybe two industries, then, again, you have that big problem. But I, I still feel that if this technology exists, we should be given access to it, and then we should find ways to try and combat the potential negative fallout and prevent it from happening. Absolutely. And just one more thing about the the MOD. If it hadn't been for the MOD that last October or early November of last year that mentioned that, you know, the story of Milton Torres, yeah. the, the, the UFO pilot, mm-hmm. because of that, that, the files were declassified by the MOD, that prompted me to create this show. So if this had happened today, folks, you would not be listening to Veritas. So in a way, I'm glad that the MOD existed, the UFO does for a while. I'm disappointed that it's closing because $73,000 is nothing, don't you think? No, it isn't. Yeah, and, and that, that's why it leads me to believe that potentially there could be other departments still doing research. We know over the years that other agencies in the British government have looked at the UFO subject. And, you know, this small amount of money is pretty much negligible. The idea that that is all that's being sent on unknown objects penetrating British airspace is absurd because we're not necessarily just talking about literal UFOs. We could, as I said earlier, be talking about foreign aircraft, you know, unidentified spy planes, that sort of thing. So it's illogical that they would ignore anything like that. Uh, But they're still, by definition, UFOs. Absolutely. And let's get now into your new work, Contactees, the book. I have to tell you that it's not that I'm tired about discussing UFOs, but I spoke to a Japanese reporter, and she and I were having a conversation, and she said, in Japan, we don't care about UFOs anymore because we know that they're here. Mm. We want to go for the abductees. We want to go for the contactees. We want to go to the aliens among us. So that's why I'm so fascinated by what you have to say. Tell us more about the subject matter of your new book, Contactees, and, and define the word contactees for those who may be confused with it. All righty. Well, for most people, I suppose, who are either new to the UFO subject or sort of well, well acquainted with today's world of ufology, everybody's pretty much heard of alien abductees. Now, the difference between today's abductees and the contactees of the past is that the the abductees are sort of, I suppose, in many respects, sort of perceived as almost like victims, you know, kidnappings, abductions, where they're treated like lab rats in, in simplistic terms with, you know, DNA, body cells, etc., allegedly removed. And the story is that this is to try and create a hybrid human alien race to, I guess, almost improve the stock of of the aliens who are allegedly on an evolutionary decline. Now, the big difference between the sort of victim-dominated realm of the abductees and the contactees is that the contactees pretty much kicked off in the late 40s and early 50s, and their encounters with aliens were not kind of like a frightening abduction scenario. They're actually almost like um, a meeting of minds in remote locations like deserts, mountaintops, isolated forests, that sort of thing, where the, the people in concern felt compelled to go out to these isolated locations where 
they, for, for reasons they didn't really understand, they just felt a, a compulsion one day, you know, to jump in the car and drive somewhere, not really knowing why they were going, hanging around kind of puzzled and confused. And then suddenly something like a classic flying saucer would loom into view, would land before them. And very human-like aliens would reportedly come out of the craft. And they were described as being um, very human-like, sometimes slightly taller, maybe about six foot five or six um, with long blonde hair usually and, and usually wearing like a, a one-piece uniform which is often described as being similar to like a, a ski suit you know that a, a, somebody who, who does skiing would, would wear and they would impart I guess messages of wisdom and how we should all live in peace and harmony with each other and disarm our nuclear weapons and so it was more of like a, a philosophical discussion between alien beings that had decided to bypass approaching the government and landing on the White House lawn in the classic scenario and go direct to the people and almost have them as their disciples on earth, if you like, as, as an analogy, to spread the word of the, like the cosmic brotherhood as it became known. So that's, that's in a nutshell, I suppose, what the, contact, what the contactees were. We know the, the word abductee has a negative connotation. I've spoken to a few of them, and some of them had such a positive experience mm. that they don't even consider themselves abductees. They say experiencer. Yeah. Is there a difference between experiencer and contactee? Well, you know, there the probably isn't that much. I think, you know, the, the thing with abductions is that I think why some people have come to embrace it as a positive experience is because they've had repeated encounters and they've come to realize that, you know, this isn't necessarily a negative thing, but it's like the first time. And some people who don't, who never have a second experience, I think it's for those people where it's seen as more frightening. You know, it's kind of like doing your first parachute jump, I suppose. Yes. The first one's going to be pretty scary. And if you do plenty of more, it becomes much easier. But if you never do another one, you always remember the, the terror of that first one. So I think, I think the nature of the experience and the person's response and feelings is largely dictated by how many interactions they have and how comfortable they feel over time. But, but experiencer is a, is a good way, I guess, of describing, like, kind of straddling the contactee and the abductee world. For how long have people been reporting contactee-type encounters? And do they go back centuries or are they just a, a, a modern phenomenon? Well, you know, certainly in terms of these so-called long-haired, slightly angelic-looking space brothers, as they became known, coming out of flying saucers, we're talking the late 40s onwards. But as I point out in the book, you know, you can actually find numerous parallels throughout history of people, you know, going out to remote locations, particularly deserts, and communing with higher beings that, that looked very similar to these sort of long-haired, wise, uh, benign space brothers. And the people who met them, you know, had their lives transformed literally overnight, as many of the contactees did. You know, you can look at, for example, and it gets controversial, I admit, you know, biblical accounts of meetings with higher beings. Um, in the 15-1600s, you know, you had a lot of similar stories, um, again, from people, you know, meeting, I guess, other dimensional entities that today we would kind of class it in a UFO context. So I think in, in that respect, it's, it's very much in the, like the eye of the beholder and, and the interpretation of where these beings are coming from. But yeah, I mean, we can go back 
as long as recorded history and you know and talk about sightings of higher beings that tried to influence and teach the human race. In the book, and this is a name that we discuss here all the time, mm-hmm. you discuss George Adamski, who's probably the most famous contactee mm-hmm. who claimed to have met human-like aliens in the California desert in 1952. Tell us more about that. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, Adamski was without doubt um, the, the ultimate contactee, and actually the chapter I have on him in the book is called The Ultimate Contactee. Um, and I don't you know, use that phrase lightly. Um, Adamski was originally from Poland, and his family moved to the U.S. when he was actually only about two or three years old and um, lived in various places. And he finally settled on California. And in the mid-1930s, actually long before his UFO experiences began, he had um, an organization called the Royal Order of Tibet, which was basically a sort of a group uh, fashioned around an alternative lifestyle of meditation, yoga, and, and things like that. So... You know, he was someone who was actually interested in and attracted to, you know, things that I guess for most people in the 1930s weren't everyday living. Um, Then in the mid-1940s to late 1940s, he claimed a number of UFO sightings um, in the California desert. But things really came to sort of a head in 1952 when, along with another contactee, George Hunt Williamson and his wife and a couple of other friends... um, he reported seeing like a definitive flying saucer come down in the California desert, again feeling, having felt compelled to go out to this particular location. And he said that this, the craft came down and this being came out again with the typical long hair, blonde hair, human-looking features, but, but something that sort of set the person out as being a little bit different, where you would look twice at them, you know, where you're not able to really put your finger on what, distinguishes them differently from us but there's something um and there was this exchange again on imparting wisdom and the perils of atomic weaponry etc and adamski communed with this being for a while on again on spiritual matters etc before the the being returned to the craft and then it you know took off and vanished and adamski claimed a number of ufo experiences and close encounter contacts excuse me, contact experiences over the years. And he he developed a huge following. For example, his first book, co-written with an Irishman, Desmond Leslie, um, the hardback alone, when it was published, sold 125,000 copies, which, you know, is is extraordinary for a UFO book. Um, And in that respect, you know, he developed a large following of people who pretty much hung on his every word. And even the FBI was watching him, which is, you know, a totally different story as well. Do you see, or is it just me, do we see any similarities between the George Adamski story and Billy Meyer? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, whether it's Adamski, Meyer, or any of the other major contactees, the stories and the scenarios are extremely similar um, in terms of the the craft are general, excuse me, generally flying saucer-shaped, the beings are usually very human to where they could pass amongst us pretty much, you know, without too much notice being attracted to them. Um, the stories generally relate to imparting wisdom and, you know, deep discussions on philosophy, even sociology and things like that. And they seem to make repeated encounters to the same people. 
Um, and there's not, none of the usual stuff we see in abductions about memory blocks or anything like that. It's as if they want the people to remember the encounters. So in that respect, there's a lot of clear parallels, you know, whether we're talking about Adamski, Meyer, or, or any of the other contactees, pretty much. And they use the word, of course, Pleiadian. And don't they also use the name Semyasi of the alien female as well? Yeah, that's that's what uh, Maya basically talked about. Um, Adamski's main contact was allegedly called Orthon. And then, you know, there are other contactees who, you know, met other beings and so forth. Um, you know, of course, now the big question is, as I mentioned in the book, to what extent... You know, we have, we're reliant, if you like, on the Space Brothers having been truthful. You know, who knows if they didn't, you know, kind of protect their point of origins um, as a mean of, means of camouflage and protection in, you know, the early tentative years of, of contact. I do actually think that's a possibility that, you know, when testing the waters, they sort of trod carefully in terms of revealing who they actually were. Well, if you go to somebody's house and they have guns and they're shooting each other all the time, would you tell them where you live? No, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> I'd probably give them somewhere completely further away than where I actually did live. So. Exactly. Send them to the moon or something. Yeah. Um, you also discussed George Van Tassel, and that's a name that we also mentioned here. He was also a 1950s. What's up with the 1950s? Why, why so much activity in the 50s? Mm. Well, you know, I mean... We can only sort of speculate, but I mean, one of, as I said, one of the cornerstones of the whole contactee law and philosophy was this concern shown by the Space Brothers about atomic warfare. Now, of course, you know, the, the first atomic bombs were exploded at the end of the Second World War. And so, you know, atomic weaponry wasn't widely available then. You know, even the U.S. only had actually a, a handful of, of bombs. Um, but it was it was in the early 50s, for example, that the Russians developed a bomb, the British did, you know, America started building more. And then it's in this period that you see, I guess, a whole wave of these contactee stories beginning. And of course, with atomic weaponry being one of the main thrusts of the, of the discussions, you know, I, I speculate that this has something to do with the time frame in which they appeared. You know, and you could speculate that if intelligent life exists all over the universe, that perhaps direct confrontation, conversation and contact isn't actually made until, you know, the, the, the relevant races either develop atomic weaponry or space travel or both, because that's the point to try and intervene, perhaps. So, you know, that, that's an idea I kind of float around. I always mention to other guests, if we were to go to another planet... The first thing we would say is take me to your leader of the planet. If an alien race were to come here, how would they accomplish that? Well, you know, I think from our perspective, we always try and unconsciously, not deliberately necessarily, we always try and look at it in the way we would do things. You know, we would perhaps land on the equivalent of the White House lawn or outside the Kremlin or outside Buckingham Palace, that sort of thing. Um, I think what, what I find interesting about the contactee stories is that, you know, if some sort of surveillance of planet Earth had been done prior to the landings, and I'm pretty sure that it must have been, then they probably would have realized, you know, we're a pretty unfriendly species when we want to be. And they may well have thought, well, if we land in front of government agencies and leaders, we could well end up, you know, killed, murdered, etc., held prisoner, who knows what. 
And I think a decision was taken whereby they decided to bypass the leaders and go really to the people who are the most important ones, which are the, the people of the planet Earth. You know, hopefully we still elect our leaders. Uh, so without us, you know, they're nothing. Um, so in that respect, I feel that they decided to take a, a very unconventional approach and pick out of the way locations, choose people to kind of become almost like their gurus and leaders of different organizations to spread their word and do it in a subtle fashion where I think one of the reasons was so that they couldn't be hunted down, you know, to come and go, um, you know, in almost like an ethereal fashion, land here, land there, and to where no one could really track their movements because it was all very much, I guess, random and not dictated. That allowed them to come and go to get the word out and not have bands of alien hunting CIA agents or troops, you know, trying to track them down and take them prisoner and interrogate them or whatever. So, so they want to take it almost the process as a on a grassroots level yeah. and perhaps creating, I don't want to make any comparison to the series V, mm. but as you know, they have the ambassadors program. So in other words, these people want to just choose a few to be their ambassadors in a way. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting you bring up V because some people, you know, do actually take more of a sinister view that the whole imagery of the, you know, the kindly, good-looking space brothers and space sisters is almost too good to be true, that they couldn't be that good, you know. And, you know, maybe they're not. That that theory has been advanced, the idea that, you know, maybe they, they come down and they say this and that, and then just like V, you know, when they go back on the ship, they peel off the... A pink skin and they've got scales underneath and they eat rats or whatever <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know? exactly um i mean you know joking aside i think the important thing is we do need to appreciate and understand that when it comes to ufos you know the u still stands for unidentified we don't really know what motivates these beings we have ideas and theories but they're based on our prejudices and beliefs which again are based on what the entities tell us you know, in a worst-case scenario, we could be being deceived um, to lull us into, like, a classic false sense of security. We, we just don't know. So. And, of course, there are some theories out there lately. Uh, for example, you have the camp of uh, Dr. Stephen Greer that says that all aliens are benevolent. Mm -hmm. And you have another uh, aspect that says uh, that not all aliens are b mm. benevolent. If we are on this planet and we can with our conventional wisdom, say that not everyone is good mm. and not everyone is bad. Can we assume the same thing can happen in the universe? Well, you know, I think any any living intelligent being has the capability of doing good or bad. And I think, fortunately, most people are understand, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Now, you know, for example, God forbid, you know, I've never killed anybody. If somebody broke into my house and threatened my wife with a gun and the gun went off and killed the person while, you know, I was struggling with it. I've killed a person, but I don't feel I'm an inherently bad person. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that's what we have to look at. It's not as black and white as somebody's good, somebody else is bad. It's somebody doing something that's right for them, but for somebody else, it may be seen as being bad. You know, for example, um, the cows in the field, you know, they think the farmer is their friend because he feeds them every day and they've got lots of grass to eat. Um, but if the, if the cows knew where they're going to end up, 
they would consider the farmer bad. But, you know, so is the farmer good, bad, or is he a little bit somewhere in between the two? That's the thing. I think it's not, it's not that clear-cut. And if it isn't that clear-cut for human beings, then who knows, you know, what goes on in an alien mind. It could be similar. It could be ideas that we just couldn't even think of because it is so alien. I think that's a great metaphor. If we were a race that was probably in extinction and we found another planet that had what we consider cattle, but in reality, there were other humans. Mm. To us, we're not harming anyone. We're just trying to survive. Yeah. So if they were to come here, and some people even claim that we are their food source, mm -hmm. then in their eyes, it may not be something bad. It's just a matter of perspective, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we don't want to end up as anybody's food, of course. But, but if we did, to us, that's a terrible thing. But then, you know, the stark reality is we don't think twice about going down to Walmart and picking up a you know, a couple of frozen pieces of beef or whatever, you know, it's, uh, it, it really is the same thing. We just don't think of it like that. That's all. We think we're top of the food chain and, and it, it could be a shock to find out we're actually quite a, a long way down maybe in reality. And I always say that it's the height of arrogance. People who say there's no proof that yeah. that there's life outside of this planet. All you need to do is just go outside at night and look up. You're going to see millions of stars. Isn't that the height of arrogance to just think we are the number one in, in the food chain? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, whole swathes of the human race are arrogant. And I think a lot of it does come from things like technology and feeling, you know, we're the best at this and that. And, you know, you suddenly get that sort of, slap around the face and a, a dose of reality when you find out wow you know it's maybe things aren't quite so good after all and um you know if you think of a species out there which potentially let's say that they reached the ability to leave their own planet and develop atomic weapons you know half a million years ago where would that put them today if you look at how far our technology has advanced in say just a hundred years from when the wright brothers just barely got off the ground to where we are today You know, it's, it's, it's probably impossible. You know, 20 years ago, who would have imagined the Internet today and the fact that if somebody said 20 years ago, you will not be able to live 20 years from now without something called the Internet, which will pretty much dictate how the whole world runs, you would, you would laugh. You know, so in 100 years from now, we probably couldn't even guess what's going to be around then. So for an alien race half a million years in front of us, yeah, I mean, it, it is arrogant to think we're the best and... You know, there's there's no topping us. I think, our, you know, our jaws would drop if we were even to come back a hundred years from now and see what's going on. If our technology evolves or doubles every 18 months, every year and a half, and in 100 years, as you said, the, the Wright brothers, imagine in 100 years from now, then imagine what a civilization, as you probably know, uh, there's, there's scriptures and there's uh, stone writings that show spaceships, that show what looked to be aliens, and that was thousands of years ago. Imagine what they are, where they are today. Mm. Yeah, and I, you know, when you say imagine, I'm not sure we, we actually can imagine. I don't know if our brains could even get around the idea of what they could be capable of. You know, I mean, you only have to look at some of the advances in technology today where people are talking about, you know, for example, at some point in the future, possibly almost like molding, you know, minds and computers together or people, you know, spending their entire leisure time in virtual reality worlds. Um, you know, the replacement of organs with synthetically grown organs when the old ones stop working properly. 
you know, advancements to try and resist old age and things like that. You know, the, the world could be substantially different 100 years from now, where it probably, you know, if we were able to sort of time travel 100 years into the future, it could be such a shock for, for our generation, for the people around now, that we couldn't exist in that world. You know, it would be too much of a culture shock for us to to see that all our old moorings and beliefs and way of life had gone and had been replaced by something else. But, you know, that's how the, you know, the same if somebody from the 19, or said the 1890s came to our world today, you know, they would be, they'd probably be in a, in a complete state of shock and probably would not be able to cope with the immense change, even if they were taught, you know, what the technology was. So I think... Again, you know, any any race out there is going to be so far advanced that it is going to be literally alien to us, not just physically alien, but, you know, alien in terms of trying to understand it as well. And the thought that in order for, for us to, to ascend, we have to continue ascending technologically, but also spiritually. It makes me wonder, and I've discussed this with a few people, that there are portions of the planet that are totally infertile, uh, that look almost as if a nuclear bomb had exploded there thousands of years ago. It makes you wonder if we seem to repeat the same again and again and we're not learning from our mistakes. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, data and theories and books that, you know, s support that notion, the idea that the human race is destructive in nature and that it's, it's almost like the cycle of the human race to achieve certain things, rise up, destroy itself, and then start over again. It's, you know, almost like the culling of the herd when when the planet gets too overpopulated and things start to go wrong, like the ozone layer, the polar ice caps, the rainforests collapsing, you know, illness just breaking out, weird viruses and just strange things going on in the world, you have to wonder if, if things do come in a cycle and, you know, maybe our cycle's coming to an end. Who knows? I, I don't think, you know, all this 2012 stuff, I don't think it's, if, it, if anything's going to happen, I don't think it's the end of the world, but... Could it conceivably be the end of our world in terms of our civilization as we understand it and the start over fresh of something else? I think that's quite possible. You know, you only have to go back and look at, for example, ancient accounts of floods. You know, you can find reports of floods in all cultures, not just in, you know, the biblical account of Noah. Uh, some actually predate, you know, the, the story of Noah even. Um, where civilizations flourished and then vanished overnight. And, you know, you have a lot of weird structures, I suppose, like the pyramid Stonehenge, where people think, well, you know, how were they built? How, were they, how did they get that top stone right up there? Um, and there's a lot of mysteries from the past that we're just not really able to resolve. And, um, you know, I think there is something to the idea that maybe an advanced civilization, not quite like ours, because if they had things like TVs and CDs, etc., we'd probably have far more... Um, remnants of it left over you know everything wouldn't have been destroyed but they seem to be far more spiritually advanced and seem to have a far deeper understanding of how to build these huge massive structures that we're just not able to compete with today and yet they could do it thousands of years ago so I think they had a very different world but one that was advanced in different ways and the question with those structures the pyramids or Baalbek in, in Lebanon or, or Stonehenge what happened to that knowledge? Why can't we recreate that? What happened? They must have been here, and that knowledge would have been disseminated, you would think. What happened to it? 
Well, that's the interesting thing. I think a lot of people who study these type of subjects realize that we have today massively lost something from the past, secrets of wisdom, spirituality, and, you know, the ability to just shift, you know, the, 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 you talk about Baalbek, for example, you know, these huge, massive stones weighing, you know, 30 tons or whatever. Um, and, you know, Stonehenge in England, you have these huge rocks, 25 feet in the, in the air, just balancing on two other rocks. I would defy any of us today, you know, with just ropes, wood, etc., to get that top rock on top of those two pillars. You know, you're just not going to do it. Um, but it is weird that it seems that the, the entire cultural history and knowledge has largely been wiped out. Um, you know, that sometimes makes me think of things like sudden cataclysms, that there was no preparation undertaken to preserve the knowledge because no one was expecting anything to go wrong. I think that's a, a possibility. But, you know, or maybe it was hidden away, you know, for future generations and was hidden so well that we don't know where it is. You know, that, that could be a possibility. And a lot of people say, well, but that's ancient technology. But then I spoke to Zachariah Sitchin recently when people were mocking him because they don't believe that ancient civilizations may have uh, stored knowledge on the tablets. And he would simply grab one of those stones in one hand and one of his books in the other hand and say, which one do you think would last a long time? And of course, it's a stone. Yeah. No, that's right. And, you know, we have evidence, as you quite rightly say, you know, stone tablets, buildings, structures all over the world from, from nations that seemingly, or you would imagine back then, you know, never had any contact with each other, but all kind of building, I guess, stone circles, you know, um, pyramids. For example, you have South American pyramids, you have Egyptian pyramids, um, cultures seemingly divided by thousands of miles and oceans, but something seemed to connect them and there seemed to have been some sort of network of a type if you like and um, aspects of it obviously have survived because we can see the pyramids and Stonehenge today but some think the secrets of the people of that time that's what's gone I think we were talking about George Van Tassel once again a 19, another 1950s contactee uh, he had he held huge conferences at a place called Giant Rock he uh, was he used to say that he was taken on board the spacecraft. Can you elaborate on Van Tassel's story? Yeah, George Van Tassel, um, actually a very clever guy. He was employed by a lot of aircraft companies in the late 40s, uh, the most prominent being Hughes Aircraft. And he was actually a, a close associate, worked very close with Howard Hughes, um, the renowned aviation expert, and you know, had his finger in all sorts of pies. Um, and in the early 1950s, um, Van Tassel bought, or leased, I should say, um, a piece of land just outside of the town of Landers in California, in the, in the desert, um, where he had an airstrip and sort of a little restaurant. And basically what it was, he, he, he manned the, the land, the airstrip, and rented it and, and made his money that way. And his family moved out there, and he claimed that um, one particular night in the early 50s, he said that his initial UFO encounter, he described it as being astrally, in the sense what today we would talk about, like almost like an out-of-body experience, where he, I guess, met these beings, but in an astral form, not a purely physical form. But his, his future experiences were definitively physical, where these 
again, classic flying saucers would come down in the desert outside of Landers, which is you know, a very desert-like area. I've been out there several times. And again, you know, kind of put him on this path where they, I guess, um, directed him to take an interest in UFOs, related the sort of ideas and philosophies they wanted to get across to the people, and encouraged him to to sort of spread the word in the way that he saw best to do it. And Van Tassel did this by putting on conferences at this place called Giant Rock. Now, it's called Giant Rock because it is the, the, the main point in this area is this huge giant rock that sits in the desert. And um, all of Van Tassel's conferences were obviously out of um, open-air conferences in the desert. And at their height in the 50s, they were attracting audiences of eleven to 12,000 you know, which any conference organizer today would would probably drop down dead with a heart attack if they got 12,000 people turning up at their conferences. You know, it just doesn't happen. But it did with Van Tassel. Um, and he had all the, you know, the major names within the contactee field coming every year, giving lectures, etc. And he, he also built a building um, in Landers called the Integratron, now, the Integratron, according to Van Tassel, was built upon the instructions of the Space Brothers. And essentially what it is, it's like a two-story building, which looks very much like an astronomical observatory, like a white domed building. And, and it, it's a big building inside, you know, two stories. And upstairs today, they have like meditation sessions and things like that that you can you know, visit the Integratron and take part in. Um, but the idea was that had it been completed according to the instructions that Van Tassel was given, it would supposedly have the, I guess, like an energy instilled in it, which would rejuvenate human body cells and by default extend the human lifespan. Um, but unfortunately, it was never finished in that fashion. And so it was just like a, you know, a structure more than anything else. But Van Tassel, excuse me, Van Tassel was a big player on the contactee scene from the early 50s, pretty much right up until the time of his death in the late 1970s. And um, he wrote a number of um, well-received books on his contacts, which were very similar to Adamski. You know, he was also based in California, desert locations and encounters. And the beings, again, look very, very similar, um, as, I can't, as I call them, kind of like space hippies or something like that. Um, so, you know, he was, he was probably just behind Adamski, I suppose, in the, in the popularity stakes. You know, Nick, in doing this show, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people who claim to have been abducted or who have had contact. Some of them tell me of their stories or having been taken aboard a craft. Mm. Aside from their stories, as investigators, what can we use as tangible evidence that mm. can be used to prove that they have been taken aboard a craft? Yeah, well, that's always, you know, that's like the $64,000 question. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Um, you know, unfortunately, that's, you know, why we're still discussing on, on shows like this and writing books is because we don't have that evidence yet, unfortunately. I think the best evidence we have, which is always encouraging, is when, for example, there are additional witnesses, you know, to the to the primary witness. I think that's always a good thing. Um, that somebody can back up and say, hey, you know, I saw that same thing come down, but that person was five miles away in a different direction, but, you know, they were able to add corroborative data, that sort of thing. I think that that's important. Um, unfortunately, you know, we don't have that. 
I guess, artifact that somebody stole from a UFO while they were on board it. Um, you know, we don't have a definitive piece of metal that, on analysis, can conclusively be said to be made on a, on another world. So, you know, it's we're still looking for that. Whether we get it, if we do, you know, that would open things up quite literally overnight, if not sooner. Um, if we don't get it, you know, we're still pretty much reliant on witness testimony. And I think most, you know, the vast majority of witnesses are honest, credible people who just want answers to what they saw. But, you know, it'll it'll never be enough to satisfy the skeptics until we really get that tangible bit of evidence that can be examined and definitively be shown to be, you know, non-human. And I don't want to sound as if I'm overly skeptical about this. I'm just, I'm keeping an open mind. But we've had thousands, if not millions of, of sightings around the world, and also thousands of people who have come forward with their contacts, their experiences, their abduction experiences, etc. You would wonder, why can't somebody, just like maybe you go to an airplane in the 70s and steal a little ashtray, if you will, from a hotel, if somebody would take something like that? Or if some of the contact experiences have been positive. And some of the people I've talked to have said it has been on a voluntary basis. Mm. Well, if it happened to me, the first thing I would ask would be, can I take my camera with me? Why is it that nobody has been able to accomplish that? Well, you know, one of the theories that's been put forward is that I guess to, I guess to protect themselves, that the aliens may have actually not, this gets into controversial areas, but they may have never actually physically taken people the, the notion is that they've i guess manipulated their minds into almost like a hypnotic state to where they create a scenario which is acceptable to us i.e being taken on board a ufo and subjected to a medical examination or just you know some sort of conversation with with the space brothers but to protect themselves and to ensure no harm comes or you know that we don't try and steal things etc that it's been more of a, almost like a matrix-type experience where we perceive it as being real because they want to get across some sort of positive message and they do it in a way that seems real to us, but that it may actually be an internal experience of our mind that they have projected into us. I don't mean to say that it's a fantasy on our part, but this alien intelligence may have actually literally manipulated the human mind. So there, is not like a, there isn't like a physical place or craft we've been to. It's almost like a holographic image, but it plays a role in getting the story across. And that explains why we're never able to take anything away from the experience, because it was unknowingly to us an internal one that was generated by an external alien intelligence. You know, you know Joe Montaldo? Yes. He and I had a conversation about re-abductions, and that's something that I really, I suspected that it was happening, but I never heard it in that context. What a great way, if the government or whoever is behind the scenes doing the re-abductions. Let's say you are abducted, and I'm in the government, and I know you were abducted. Instead of me coming to you and say, okay, come here, tell us what happened, because that immediately would be somewhat of a disclosure. Mm -hmm. But if I do it covertly, and I re-abduct you just to see what you experienced, mm -hmm. isn't that feasible? Do you believe that is happening? Yeah, I, th I don't doubt that... Um, you talk about government involvement, you mean? Yes, millaps. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I don't doubt for one minute that, in fact, I know that, you know, government agencies have taken a deep interest in abductions. I actually have a new book coming out on this in about April. Oh. Um, it's called uh, Final Events. It's, it, it looks at a think tank group in the U.S. government that covertly examined abduction stories over a course of several decades. Right. And, and so there's no doubt in my mind that government agencies have taken a deep interest in stories of alien contact and abductions. For example, the FBI have now declassified their surveillance files on George Van Tassel and George Adamski. So we know that that spying went on. So if it went on with the contactees in the 50s, you know, it's logical to assume that it would continue to the present day with the abductees. And uh, I think you're quite right. You know, the idea of taking someone again to try and probe their mind as to what happened. Um, but again, do it in a context where they're perhaps, you know, subjected to mind altering drugs and they're kind of spaced out and not really sure what's going on. That acts as a good cover where they spill the beans because they're in an altered state of mind. But equally, they're not really in enough of a state of mind to remember where they were taken, who was doing the interrogation, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, it works to the government's advantage to do this, unfortunately, from our perspective, um, you know, to keep tabs on what lies at the heart of the abductions and try and learn more as to, you know, what might may be taking place. Well, look at the story of Jim Sparks, who yeah. eventually, after so many abductions, he saw military personnel mm. with uniforms right next to him. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't remember having talked to them, but doesn't that tell you that th there's at least, if not that they're involved there, there's collusion with them. Yeah, I think, I think the government, my conclusion is the government knows a lot about abductions. And I think like a lot of people in the UFO subjects, they're in two minds as to what's going on and they want to be in one mind and to be in one mind, they need all the answers as we do. I think, you know, there are, at the end of the day, you know, people in government are human beings just like us, you know, the UFO research community. And I think there are probably as many views on the inside as there are on the outside. I think there's always a tendency for us to think that if the government's investigating something UFO related, it knows all what's going on. It may well be the case that the government's got a lot of abduction reports. They know abductions are real and the contacts are real, but they may actually not have a firm 100% grasp on the situation. They may have a lot of suspicions as to what lies at the heart of it, but no hard evidence. So I think that explains the ongoing interest. If they had all the answers, there would be no reason to keep, keep tabs on abductees. I think the very fact that they do shows they're still looking to an extent to find out what's going on. They're kind of confused, I think. Not to digress the conversation, but I think this is totally, oh, if no, not in, indirectly, but directly related. The Eisenhower alleged meeting where abductions were proposed as a way to, to for an exchange of technology. Mm. Do, you, do you lend credence to that story? Well, you know, the only, the major problem I have with that story is it seems so simplistic, the idea that we would almost like sit down at a table with beings from another world totally different to us and sign a treaty. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, it seems too simplistic an idea that we could even negotiate and, and talk on that, I guess from their perspective, primitive level of, okay, Mr. Ambassador, sign your name here and we agree to allow you to do this if we do that. Exactly. I think it doesn't mean that we don't have their technology. It doesn't mean the government 
doesn't know that these beings are here doing the things they're doing. I just find the, the idea of, you know, a treaty kind of a simplistic sci-fi scenario more than anything else. Um, but it, as I said, it doesn't mean that the, the literal things aren't going on, of course. I just think there's something odd about that. It's almost, a, it's almost a saying to a group of cows, bring me your leader, let's sign a treaty here, and this is how many cows we're going to eat. We're just going to eat them anyway, right? Yeah, it, it just wouldn't make sense. And, and why should, if a race can get from point A to point B, point B being us, why, and they have all this power, why would they even need to enter into a treaty? Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Timothy Good, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Mm-hmm. 